1: The superscription here says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, I think I mentioned in one of our Genesis episodes that scholars believe that the name Abimelech is actually better understood as a sort of title. It means hereditary king. The word literally means my father was king. So that's why it shows up again and again and again in the biblical narrative. Anyway, this Abimelech, this king, was almost certainly the one associated with the story in 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, which says this, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, quote. So that is the story. That's the event that gave rise to this psalm. Psalm 34 is an acrostic psalm like several other psalms, including Psalm 25 and Psalm 119, In acrostic psalms, each verse begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet or sometimes uh, each line of the poem. Maybe not exactly uh, equating to our verse system, but each new line of the poem starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you were going to do this in English, for example, you'd have verse 1 begin with the letter A, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You'd have verse 2 begin with the letter B, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you'd keep going in that fashion. Now, such an approach will work very well with certain themes. The acrostic approach works best when you have one big idea that you want to explore from a variety of angles. So Psalm 119, the great theme there is actually how great the Word of God is, and the psalmist just hits that theme from a variety of angles until he has exhausted everything he wants to say about the Word of God, which, if you've read Psalm 119, is quite a lot. So in acrostic psalms, you tend to get depth and color as opposed to development and logical sequence. The dominant theme here in Psalm 34 is joy in the experience of divine rescue. David has escaped from a serious jam, and he is freshly aware of God's fatherly care and concern, and he wants to sing about it again and again and again. That's what this psalm is, a fulsome expression of gratitude and delight in the Lord. So let's get into it. Here now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all His troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, stylistically, you'll probably notice that David alternates here between personal testimony and repeated calls for others to join with him in his expressions of gratitude. So he says in verse four, for example, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. All right, that's Personal testimony, obviously. So David did those things, and he's reporting that. But then in verses 8 to 9, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. So there, David is calling on others to join in his experience. He's giving advice based on what he has recently learned. Now, this is classic David. We talked about this in the episode on Psalm 32. At the end of that psalm, David has become a teacher as well. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, that's Psalm 32, 8-10. to 10. Now, the main theme in Psalm 32 is actually about how amazing it is to be forgiven by a gracious God. The first two verses of that psalm say, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, that psalm was about David being blown away by the willingness of God to forgive his sin with Bathsheba. The theme of that psalm was, thank you, God, for your undeserved mercy and kindness. But then having experienced that, David wants to teach others about that. He wants to tell other people, don't be a mule like I was. Don't kick against the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Just do the right thing and you'll be happier in the long run. Now, some of us may be inclined to think that David was a bit of a hypocrite, but he's not. A hypocrite is when you say something you really don't believe. So David's not a hypocrite. He's a human and a penitent. He's humble, and he wants to share his failures and his subsequent revelations as a blessing and a guide to others. Matthew Henry says here, penitents should be preachers, closed quote. I would 100% agree with that. If you have learned something in the school of hard knocks, then share that honestly, Humbly and earnestly for the benefit of others. That's what David is doing here. Now, there are a couple of phrases in the first half of the Psalm that may need some further unpacking. Just look back at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. That's an interesting Hebrew word there that's translated in the ESV as radiant. It is the Hebrew word nahar. It's the same word used in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5, to describe a mother's face lighting up when she sees her long lost children returning from slavery or exile. And it's the word that's also used in Exodus 34 verse 29 to describe the face of Moses when he came down the mountain after seeing God. That's the the word, that's the phrase behind the famous passage in the New Testament where it talks about beholding the glory of the Lord and being changed by one degree of glory to the next. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. So it has to do with joy and it has to do with glory. It has to do with a face that just lights up David is saying that those who experience God as, as he has, as Moses did, as with the metaphorical mother who received back her children as a miracle of God, those who experience the goodness and grace of the Lord are filled with a certain type of joy, a radiant joy, a joy that changes us and that works its way through us and produces in us a new aspect, a new countenance, a new character. When you experience something like that, when you when you have that sort of encounter with God, it changes you. That's the basic idea here. And so, again, that leads to David commending this sort of discovery to others. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I, I wish you could all have this sort of experience of God, friends, David is saying. I highly recommend it. Well, of course, the experience itself was initially terrifying, but David has learned that such experiences are well worth the price that you pay for them. He says in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, by the way, that word afflicted in Psalm 119, 71 is the verb form of the same root word used in verse 2 of this Psalm, Psalm 34, that is translated in the ESV as humble. A lot of translations actually put that as afflicted. So the NIV for Psalm 34 too, says, I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. So maybe David wrote Psalm 119 shortly after he wrote Psalm 34. We don't know. The point is, that he is expressing a common theme. The idea that experiences of God's preservation and rescue, however terrifying and difficult they may be at the time, in the long run are much to our advantage because we learn things in those experiences that we can't learn anywhere else. A little affliction is good for you, David is saying. You come out a better worshiper a more humble follower, and just a better human being all around. I highly recommend the experience. If you never get in a jam, then you'll never be able to declare, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And you'll never be able to say to people with the same sort of conviction that David has when he said, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Only people who have stepped out in faith or who have experienced real affliction and rescue can talk like that. But David did. So David did. He knew it and he spoke about it. Praise the Lord. Now, it goes without saying that verse 9 in Psalm 34 has to be read in context. David isn't saying that if you fear the Lord, you'll drive an expensive car and always be able to take nice vacations. He is saying all of this as he reflects on his own miraculous rescue from the king of Gath. So, Derek Kidner says here, It is not an empty promise of affluence, but an assurance of his responsible care. Closed quote. God is watching over you, David says. He loves you, and he will take care of you if you are his child. That's the idea, and that's the discovery that is being celebrated here. Let's jump back into the psalm at verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Let's just pause here for a second. In, in the second half of the psalm, the emphasis is really on instruction in wisdom. David is leaning in here. He's he's the wise older man sharing his hard-earned experience. He says, "Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord." The second half of this psalm could easily slide into the book of Proverbs, and no one would even notice. It sounds exactly what you find in Proverbs chapter one through nine. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's Proverbs 1.7. And of course, that's exactly the same as what we're reading here. The basic idea in this second half is that all true and lasting good is found within the context of a right relationship with God. With God, all is good. There may be some ups and downs. There may be some educational affliction. But even that in the end is for our good and our everlasting glory, All is good inside the embrace of God. All is bad outside in the place of rebellion and estrangement. That's the idea. And we can see that carried on now in verses 15 and following. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems The life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There is no greater comfort than the knowledge that the God who loves us watches over us. God sees, and he is active and responsive in his seeing. He sees the dangers long before we do, he sees farther than we do, he knows more than we do. So he is often moving to answer or respond before we are even aware of our needs. He's on it. His face is toward us. His ear is open to our prayers. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Thanks be to God. Now, in verse 19, if you just lift your eyes up a little higher there, in verse 19, we're reminded that this doesn't necessarily mean, these wonderful promises of God's oversight, that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't go through difficulties. It just means we won't go through difficulties without resources. God will be with us, and he will be prepared to give us what we need to survive and thrive. The same afflictions that will destroy those who don't know God, David says, will only make us stronger and will only cause our witness to shine out all the brighter. That's the big idea there. Now, verse 20 is likely one of the verses that stands behind John 19.36. So in John 19.36, the evangelist says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Closed quote. Interestingly, though, in my Bible, the text note there for John 19.36 actually leads to Exodus 12.46, which says, it shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones, Close quote. So that obviously is referring to the Passover ritual. So it isn't actually clear which passage John is referring to in John 19.36. And so most commentators, I think rightly, assume that he is referring to both. John is saying that when we look at Jesus on the cross, we should see our Passover lamb. And we should be reminded that even though his sufferings were terrible, they were limited by the sovereign and fatherly ordination of the Lord. They were not more than he could bear. And God was with him and resourcing him throughout them all. I think that's important for us to remember. And it must inform our interpretation and application of this verse in Psalm 34. Clearly, this is not God saying, my children, believers, will never suffer. After all, John applies this to Jesus on the cross. So it can't be saying that. Rather, it must be saying that God will watch over us in our suffering. He will bring salvation out from our suffering and will comfort and strengthen us
0: once again, that's into intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.